Welcome to the Adventures in Producing podcast. My name is Wendy Mitchell. I'm a UK-based film journalist and film festival consultant. And I started these talks with amazing producers because I don't think independent film and TV producers get enough attention for all their work. I think a lot of people don't understand what a producer actually does. So in each episode, I talk to one producer about their career and some lessons learned. I hope you enjoy. And I've got one of the top amazements here with us today, who is Rebecca O'Brien. She is born in London, based in London. Um, She worked as a location manager, actually, before moving into film production. She is best known, of course, for her amazing, fruitful collaboration with Ken Loach, I think at least 31 years and counting. Starting with Hidden Agenda, I mean, I can't name all of them, but Land and Freedom, My Name is Joe, Sweet 16, The Wind That Shakes the Barley, Angel Share, Spirit of 45, I, Daniel Blake, Sorry We Missed You. Uh, So she and Ken, and I believe Paul Laverty, the writer, also um, started their own production company, 16 Films. Um, So she'll tell us about that. She's also sometimes works without Ken. Uh, which is always interesting, um, including films like Bean for working title. I have to ask her about that because it doesn't fit in with the Ken Loach films. Uh, City of Tiny Lights by Pete Travis. You Were Never Really Here by Lynn Ramsey. Love that film. Um, Executive producing a great debut called Lynn and Lucy by Faisal Belifa that we showed at San Sebastian. I love that film. And coming up next is Christian Carrion's My Son. She's also really, really active in the industry um, at groups like PACT, European Film Academy, British Screen Advisory Council. And I have to say on a personal note, uh, you know, I've been living in the UK for what, 16 years. And Rebecca was one of those first people I met when I started working at Screen and just always so generous, even when I didn't know what I was talking about. Maybe still don't. Um, always happy to sit on a panel or give some advice or mentor, do mentoring interviews with young filmmakers for our stars of tomorrow and things like that. So I'm so happy Rebecca's here. Thank you, Rebecca. It's a pleasure. So can you tell us a little bit about how you got your start? Maybe not just in the film business, in the creative industries, because you did a little bit at Edinburgh Film Festival and then in theater. Yeah, no, I I mean, I grew up in Scotland and quite near Edinburgh and um, I was a huge film fan from early days. And um, although I went to university in London, but in the holidays, I'd be back up in Edinburgh and and my mother was a bit of an artist and, and we, were, um, we were very close to Richard DeMarco who had a gallery and also was involved in bringing um, strange theater companies and things to uh, Edinburgh and him and David Gothard who was a, theatre director who was training at the Travers, um, they brought uh, a Polish theatre company called Krico 2, run by uh, an extraordinary artist called Tadeusz Kantor. They came to Edinburgh on a few occasions, but one occasion in 76, they came and uh, they came at the last minute and there was nowhere for them to stay. So my mother, um, maniac that she was, um, decided to invite them all to stay at our house in Peebles. We lived in a big house at the time. So we basically invited an entire Polish theatre company to come and stay. As you do. As you do. Yeah. With their spy as well. 
and they came and we helped them find a location for the show uh, which was called the dead class and it just happened to be the fringe hit of that year and so this experience of working or, 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 or living with a bunch of completely crazy poles was sort of probably one of my first experiences in in event, art events <laughs> and I got a real flavor for it and um, through David Gothard, who was, at, you know, the theatre person, um, I, I met Linda Miles, who was running the film festival, because they were at uni together. And I begged Linda on three occasions to come and work for the film festival during my holidays, and eventually she relented. I'd been chucked out of my flat in London, the, 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 um, the landlord wanted to get rid of, rid of us, so I actually had some money one summer. And um, so I called Linda and I said, look, I am, you know, whether you like it or not, I'm actually going to come and work for you. And so I did. And I got to do, I got to help with the program. I got to. So you weren't just tearing tickets. No, no, I was I, actually my job was I, we invented publicity. We did publicity. So I, I nobody done, had done it before. So I did it. And um, uh, <laughs> And yeah, we just uh, got bigger audiences by doing it. And and I became very good friends with Linda very quickly. And we started watching, I mean, she let me watch films with her as she was selecting them. And that's, that summer we found, we discovered David Lynch. Um, he'd sent in- I've a heard of him, yeah, that's a good discovery. Yeah. yeah. He'd sent in a, a razor head in a rather dodgy looking tin and we all watched it and we all thought, bloody hell, that's something else. So anyway, I did three summers at Edinburgh Film Festival and met a lot of filmmakers, a lot of journalists, a lot of people who I still know. And um, and after I left uni, I I actually worked in the theatre for a couple of years. I worked at Riverside Studios with David Gothard. And it's all about who you know, mate. <laughs> David had, was involved with. And, and the first show that went to uh, Riverside was um, was the Dead Class, the, the Polish theatre company's show. So I was sort of involved with Riverside and Edinburgh and ended up working at, at Riverside for a couple of years, working in an admin and helping David bring all sorts of theatre companies from all over the world. And, and I also worked in the press office for a year there as well. And in the end, and we, was, we were, we were opening a cinema too, so I was never far from wanting to get back into the movies. And um, in the end, I sort of thought, this, I love the theatre, but it's not really me. I, I'm not outside enough. I want to run around more. And so I, um, I went and did a one week film production course. Where um, was that course? That was called, it was a company called Crosswind Films in Wapping. And, uh, and they, they'd set up this thing where, you know, the main guy, Steve Bernstein was a director and he'd sort of set up this little course thing. It was a two bit operation. Anyway, I did one week course and that was my epiphany. And that was like, I have to do film. This is what I have to do. So I chucked in my job at Riverside and I worked for them for six months. I learned, uh, they, they, they needed a producer. So I produced a couple of short films for them. And then I worked, it, it, it was, it was much more sort of ragtag business then. Um, there wasn't really an independent business. Channel Four was just opening, and um, 
uh, one of the things I did was one of the first things I got to do was a film called Crystal Gazing, directed by Peter Wallen and Laura Mulvey. Um, they, I'd met them in Edinburgh. They'd heard I got into production. They asked me if I would be work for them on this low-budget BFI film. And I that was, was location scouting or something else? No, production match. Okay. <laughs> it was like I was, but I was also basically, I think I was location manager as well. So, but, and we filmed all around where I live in Notting Hill and, and so I knew the area well and so I sort of did that and then and then actually the key the key job I did was I worked um, again through Riverside I met Barry Hansen the producer and his wife Susanna Capon had set up with him a, a, an educational TV company and they were doing a kids series a multicultural kids magazine program which which Michael Rosen the poet was involved in and so they needed a general person to help with the production and research and everything and um, I got that job and I did that for two years and it was it was an amazing apprenticeship working for Susie Capon was amazing because she'd come from the BBC and she knew all about contracts and copyright and law and she just threw me in at the deep end and said okay go and get this shot and do this and do that mm -hmm. and we we went all over the country we made probably in the course of two years we made probably about 200 little films which all were like each program was seven six or seven little stories and little bits of sort of actors telling their favorite stories Michael Rosen being this wonderful character character called Dr Smarty Pants but we were also filming in places like Belfast, where the troubles were going on, and Liverpool, where the, they just had the Toxtis riots. And we were working with real kids, uh, kids from all sorts of different backgrounds. And, you know, you do a story about how you make yogurt in different countries and things. And, you know, it was it was great. But that was my apprenticeship. And when I came out of that, I sort of just became a freelance production person. And... Mm -hmm and basically worked my way up being a location manager and uh, production manager on various early Channel 4 projects mainly. Including My Beautiful Laundrette, right? My Beautiful Laundrette. I mean, again, I sort of got that job because I knew Hanif Qureshi, because Hanif had been at Riverside Studios. And when he, uh, he, he was basically kicked downstairs to the books, bookshop and told to write a, write a story, write a, few scripts because he's clearly a good writer and I got his job and then so Hanif I think introduced me to Stephen Frears and and uh, and that was Working Title's first production and uh, and and basically and was it the first for film four or that in Pernod? No, no. no it was early film four it was 84 I think we shot it so there'd been a few, I'd done, the, the year before I'd done a, a all women film called Sacred Hearts, yeah. um, directed by Barbara Rennie, which was amazing. Um, and um, not sort of nuns and schoolgirls film, it was great fun. It had people like Kathy Burke and, and Katrin Cartledge in it. Um, oh. As kids, I mean, they were in the 16, oh. 17 years old. Oh <laughs> so, but Laundrette was really special because you know, we were all doing something brand new and and um, and Stephen had chosen to work with very young people and and I hadn't really done locations properly, but 
he just trusted that I wanted to get on with it. And because I live very close to him, um, I was driving him around all the time and I, you know, chatting away about the film and what you do. And, and that's how you learn, you know, just chatting to directors. And we, the designer was somebody I'd done dancing classes with when I was about five years old, a guy called Hugo Vahovsky. And so I knew Hugo as well. And, and so we were all driving around and I, I, I one of the, the main things though I did on that film was, I really did find the locations. And I, I mean, like there's a lot of trains in the film. And so I would be, I, I traveled all the, all the South London railway lines to see where I could find flats, which were close to the line where you get that effect. And, and there would be moments when I'd be sitting on top of a tower block communicating with the set saying there's a good train coming there's a good train coming <laughs> so it was it was a sort of baptism of fire but it was in the i mean it, we shot it in six weeks but it it sort of lingers on yeah that's amazing yeah it felt like a turning point in british cinema that film yeah. obviously and um, a lot of good people were on that were on that film and um actors and 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 crew you know jane fraser was on it and she became a great production person and um you know there were a lot oliver stapleton was the dop there were some great people um and it was just it just had a sort of anarchic feeling to it and it was just what i wanted to do and so i, I sort of went on i continued doing tv series because you you did tv and you did film and everything was on 16 mil so it didn't really matter what you yeah. did it's like now people go back and forth, but yeah. Back yeah, then. it was like that then in the mid eighties. And uh, so anyway, I cut my teeth doing that stuff. And wow. and obviously new working title and and they, um, around about the end of 87, I was, uh, Peter Wallen asked me to produce a film called Friendship's Death, which he'd mm -hmm. written. And this is your first time as, Producer, producer, yeah, yeah. I'm a teacher, yeah, yeah, and it was a very small project. It was, um, but had a, a young actress named Tilda Swinton in it, right? Yeah, funnily <laughs> enough, and and, and a, an older actress, actor called Bill, Bill Patterson. And it's a sort of two hander, and it takes place in two rooms, two hotel rooms, and it's and it's an extraordinary film. Um, basically, the uh, journalist discovers this Western woman walking in the streets of Amman in Jordan and it's curfew time and he's sort of she seems lost and he takes her under his wing and 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 over the course of the next couple of weeks they, they they're in the hotel and they, they 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 have a series of conversations and through the conversations you you begin to understand that actually the woman is an alien and she's arrived in the wrong place and you gradually over the course of the conversations you actually believe she is an alien and of course perfect role for Tilda and um and because we shot it just before Christmas we shot it in a studio in in we got some space in Twickenham studios because it was just before Christmas and nothing else was happening and we rehearsed every we had rehearsed for a week in in a, a rehearsal theater with the DOP and we worked out all the shots and since it was really a two-hander, we, we, we shot the thing literally in two weeks and oh. every shot was planned out. And it's a really special film and Vitold Stock was the cinematographer. And funnily enough, on Monday, Vitold and I are going to do a commentary because the film was selected last year for Cannes Classics. Oh. And, um, 
And so I think they might be taking it again, taking it this year because of the yeah. pandemic. Yeah. So yeah, my first film is going to Cannes. Wonderful. <laughs> I like yeah. rewriting history is perfect. And why did you think, you know, it sounds like in an alternate universe, you could have been a publicity maven um, or, you know, location genius or, you know, maybe a screenwriter or working in distribution. Why do you think producing was the right path? Because I'm a jack of all trades or a jill of all trades. And I, I'm not particularly good at anything, Wendy. I'm quite good. Oh. Lots of bits and pieces. I mean, I'm, I'm a real, a, gen, a generalist through and through. And I think that's what you need to be a producer. You need to just have a sort of interest in all things. I mean, I sort of get bored with detail. And so I think... So if you were in one specific role on a set, then it would be the detail, the detail, the detail, and you might get bored, but you get to, as a producer, you get to dabble you're, you're all of it. You have an overview and you're, and, and, and I come from quite a line of women organizers. My, my grandmother, who I, I my, my great grandmother was a sort of grand dame of Edinburgh. And she used to, she opened Edinburgh Zoo, for instance, and she was on the, must have been on the council or something like that. I know she was a very important woman. And um, and she was an organizer and my mother was very good at organizing things and and um, absolutely bonkers, but, but could organize. And I think there's a gene there mm. which is organizational and it's just being able to open doors and, and sort of get the overall thing and take it on. And I think, I suppose, it suits me to have that, to play that role and to, and, and I've always been quite numerate hmm. as well. And I think numeracy is quite important for producers because you need to sort of feel safe with budgets and money and numbers. Yeah. I mean, and it's that blend of creativity and being numerate. Um, and they, it's, it's it's a, yes. I mean, I couldn't decide what to do at university. I did geography because it was such a general subject. I mean, but at, 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 at school, I did A-levels in English, geography, um, maths, and I wanted to do art, but they said if I did art, it wasn't an academic subject, so I wouldn't go to uni. So I, I'd sort of do a bit of all those things. Art. And it's, sort of, it's just general stuff. And but with, a specific, with geography, it was a sort of, I mean, geography and I also, my subsidiary subject was economics. So it's sort of locations and budgets. And <laughs> it sort of shows you where I'm at. I mean, I certainly have a very strong sense of location and place mm. and, uh, you know, real passion for place. So, mm. and I, I know how to read a map and I know how to, I don't know, I don't get lost very often. And I, so I, I sort of have an understanding of place. And I think all of, I'm sort of that, that sort of grounding is is very good for a producer I think and I mean I you know very not particularly good at certain aspects of the job but one of the things about that is that as a producer the key thing is to know who to go to or know how to find somebody who is good at the thing that you're yeah. not good at. What would you say you know after all these decades in the business what would you say you're not good at in the job I'm curious. I'm still not particularly good at at, uh, at script analysis, actually. Mm. I mean, I I sort of I've learned over the years to to be able to 
um, voice what I like and what I don't like and and to be able to in a sort of useful way for the filmmaker yeah very general very general and having worked in your job in a way as a PR person I, I I've uh, I mean, I, 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 when I was at college, I was I was editor of the college magazine. So I sort of know about editing a bit and know about words and writing and yeah, communicating. Yeah, but yeah. I, mean, I sort of dabbled here and there and all these different things. So. So it's. It's a it's a just a, I'm just a bit of an all rounder. Yeah. I love that. Well, a producer needs to be. So that's yeah. perfect. Yeah. Um, can we ask how did you meet Mr. Ken Loach? This relationship changed your professional life. Um, did. How did you meet him? Did you know you wanted to work with him immediately? Well, actually, um, in fact, I met him first when I introduced him uh, at a screening at Edinburgh Film Festival. When he oh, was I didn't know that. How wonderful. But he can't remember that. Yeah. But I, and I was a huge fan. I mean, I really was a fan. I, I saw Kathy come home when it first went out in, in 66. And I think it was about nine or ten at the time and I remember watching Days of Hope his tv series and thinking mm. this is phenomenal I just loved what he did and how how he did it was so interesting but it was through working title because and the way it worked was this I did Friendship's Death and therefore I was a producer <laughs> working title we're all about the same generation Tim Bevan and Sarah mm. Radcliffe knew me and and so they knew I was a producer and they were developing a TV series that they wanted to do in Ireland and they thought oh well Rebecca can do that so I went and did this TV series with um based on a book by Maeve Binchy um it's a wonderful sort of um schoolgirl. okay is it romantic yeah it's yeah wow seaside growing up rites of passage story and that was a four-part series, um, which I did with Barbara Rennie, who directed the all-women film that I did. And we, we and Grania Marmion was working for Working Title, but she hadn't enough experience to produce it. So Grania and I sort of did it together. And, um, and so we, we went to Ireland and got it shot. So then I, was, I became Working Title's Irish expert. And, and did you have any... Irish, you don't have Irish heritage or connections particularly, no. The name is Rebecca O'Brien. Yeah. O'Brien is an Irish name. Yeah, but you know, how far back is that? Well, my grandfather's Irish. Okay. So um, my grandfather was Irish and his family go way back. Okay, yeah. There's more O'Briens in the world than there are many other people. Yes. Um, anyway, so, Having produced Echoes for Working Title, I was their Irish expert, and they happened to be doing a film in Ireland with Ken Loach. And I said, of course I want to do that. Of course, of course, I'm a huge fan. So they put me together with Ken, and off we went to do what a, a, a book called Fools of Fortune, which was a William Trevor book. But, and we, we, we were out there for a month or so, wrecking and all the rest of it and getting on like a house on fire but Ken was not getting on very well with the writers uh, because he was trying to really turn a romantic novel into the wind that shakes the barley it's and it, a Ken Loach film yeah, yeah. <laughs> and it, it just wasn't working for them so about four weeks away from shooting we we, we got sacked and um Ken just happened to have another script under his arm which which was uh, something called The Heel of the Hunt by Jim Allen. 
And that ultimately became Hidden Agenda. And Ken and I took three years to get that developed and off the ground. But we'd, we'd really enjoyed working together and, you know, we thought, let's try it. He had, he'd had a bad 1980s. And so he was, he was making commercials at the time. And while we were developing it, he got me work as a location manager on some of the commercials. So I was able to survive. And we, and we, and I, we, you know, I hadn't the experience, and this is where being a producer, bringing in another, when you don't know what to do, I got, uh, we sort of put a pin in the map of Soho to try and find somebody to help us raise the money. And we came up with Eric Fellner. Oh, and Eric. He's a good one. <laughs> Eric, Eric helped us get the money together um, for Hidden Agenda. Eventually, it took ages because it was very controversial. And the script was great, but we kept on getting knocked back by TV companies who would love it. And then it went to the top and they said, no, 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 we're not gonna to touch this with a barge pole, it's so political. But actually our researcher, Julia, um, Julia Kennedy was researching for us and she went back to Dublin at Christmas and met this character who said he was a producer and uh, wanted to know what she was doing and she explained what she was doing and she gave me his contact details and it happened to be John Daly who ran Hemdale at the time and so I put Eric in touch with John and lo and behold Hemdale paid for the whole thing wow he paid for the film because they, they had a sort of sideline in political thrillers they did Salvador they did some very interesting things and so it was a bit of a risk for Eric, um, but they paid for it and we got the film made because of their support. And it was a bonkers production because we weren't, the completion guarantors wouldn't let us shoot in Belfast because mm. of the troubles. Yeah. Until we'd shot all the principal photography, but because Ken shoots in sequence, we, um, we, had to shoot because one of the main characters gets killed in the first five minutes we had to do something in Belfast so so we did some rehearsals and we did some camera tests in Belfast don't tell the bonding company yeah well funnily enough we were a week ahead of schedule by the time we got to the end and so they let us go back to Belfast and we and we and we we did some location stuff and things in Belfast and we, 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 we got the whole thing done. And the great thing about it, I mean, Frances McDormand was the, the leading lady and that she was just brilliant. And the film went to Cannes. And there was this incredible argy-bargy at the press conference because the British press was so angry about the film because all these political issues were uh, not proven at the time. And, and uh, but every, everything that every there were three um conjectures that we made in the film all of which over the next decade were proved to be true and but the the british journalists accused ken of being a traitor of being betraying his country all this stuff and the the international journalists couldn't think what on earth it was all about but um but it won the jury prize and it sort of put ken back on the map yeah and so wow. From then on, he was sort of busy again. Yeah, and that's a new era for Ken and, you know, working so much with you. Um, 
I wanted to ask, yeah, I mean, you mentioned the controversy with that particular film, but Ken is one of the most political filmmakers out there today. And I think I'm someone who thinks we definitely need political filmmaking. You know, is that something you get drawn into that sometimes? You know, I've seen you quoted in articles about, you know, disruption in Israel and Palestine with his films. And um, are you comfortable being that political yourself? Do you like to just let Ken talk about that side of things? Obviously, you must agree with some of his politics, but I you're not the same person. Yeah. You must disagree sometimes. I, I, I do. I mean, I, yeah. I, I obviously I'm, I'm I sort of have a have a, a left wing tendency and yeah. always have done. And um, uh, I think I, I was never ideological. And I think um, I've always been political with more with a small p and I but the the stories of the films providing they were well researched I was be always behind them all the way and on certain issues very very clearly aligned and I um, mean it's very difficult work Ken Ken includes you in his alignment so you're you're sort of almost sort of, almost by default dragged into any sort of uh, debate but you know, nine times out of 10, I do actually agree with him. And he uh, can argue the hind legs of a donkey. So it's quite difficult because he's actually trained as a lawyer, as has Paul Laverty. So, the, the, you know, basically standing up to those two is, isn't always the easiest thing to do. Um, but I, I mean, on the whole, I mean, I certainly agree with all the politics of the films. And I think, and it's, and I've learned so much through doing the films. I mean, I learned, all about the north of Ireland doing Hidden Agenda. I learned, I mean, I learned, I've learned so much and that's, that's been incredible. I mean, I learned about the Spanish Civil War doing Land and Freedom. I learned about the Irish struggle doing um, The Wind That Shakes of Bali. Uh, and, you know, all of these, the, the, the key thing to the work is, is that it's so well researched. And I think that that's such an important part of it. Um, and, and so, yeah, I mean, I, I'm I'm with Ken all the way, and I will support him all the way, um, even if I'm not quite as vehement as he is. I'm you know not prepared to lay down on a railway track for certain issues where yeah. Ken might be, yeah. but um, but I will support him all the way. You know. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you wouldn't be the right producer for him if you didn't agree with most of yeah. the stories that you're telling. Yeah. yeah, and I think, and I think also the style of producing that I do. I mean, I tend to be non-adversarial. I mean, I think you're when you you join forces with a director and a writer, you're 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 teaming up. You know, you're in it together. So if you're if you're if you're sort of trying to be contrary uh, to what they want to do, then then to my mind, that's not going to work. I mean, I don't. I, I'm not going to. You know, everything is by negotiation and discussion. And, you know, if something's looking like it might be too expensive, then I'll explain it's too, it looks too expensive. Let's come up with an alternative, not saying, no, you can't do that. So it's, it's a sort of, I, I mean, I, you know, it's a sort of, uh, uh, a sort of discussion and those sort of elements are always part of producing. And I mean, I think over, over the years, uh, I've always explained to Ken what I'm trying to do, and 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 he's always had a and he's always known what the budget is and things like that. So it's it's like we're all in all in it together. Yeah, I wanted to talk. I think it's one of the most successful sort of triangles, triumvirates 
holy trinities is you and Ken and Paul Laverty. Um, and I know you could probably write a book just about how the three of you work, but can you tell us a little bit about, yeah, how do you, how do the three of you tend to collaborate? I know it might be slightly different on each project, but you know, well, how do you fit together? The way, the way it works. I mean, it, it, it's evolved obviously, but, but Paul has the ideas, uh, but the, but the, the, the ideas are sort of, are ongoing and, and, and they're sort of, the discussion is a continuing discussion about politics and issues and all the rest of it. So it's it's, and and the three of us will might meet for dinner or something, either before or during whatever we're shooting before, and then we we come up with the Paul might sort of put three ideas to us, and Ken will perk up mainly at one idea, and and then that's something that you know so it's so something bubbles up to the surface that seems to be the thing we should do next and then paul goes off and researches the idea um and he might and, and sometimes ken will go with him so for instance with i daniel blake ken and paul travel the country and met a lot of people in different places and paul will do the reading and the, and 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 talk to lots of people and he's really great at that and then he'll go away and he'll come up with a few pages of character ideas, story ideas, just a sort of scattergun approach to mm. different, it's not like a perfect treatment, it's just ideas on a page that, and then he'll talk that through with Ken and me, and, and but mainly Ken, and, and then after he and Ken have had proper conversations about it, Ken, uh, Paul will go away and write the script. Mm. And two weeks, you know, two months later, he will come back with what, what is very close to final, final draft. Wow. Then Ken will work, sit down and work with him for a couple of days on the detail of the draft. I won't read that one. Paul will go back for a week or two, come back with a new draft. That's what I will read. And I will make some general points about it. And Ken and he will again go through it a bit more and then he'll go away and 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 then comes back with the finished script i mean i daniel blake basically i think i was in the middle of shooting um city of tiny lights and paul mm. sent me the screenplay and said don't read it don't read it until you finish shooting but i did read it and and we shot that you know six months later wow. you know it's that quick the turnaround but we need three months to do the casting absolutely yeah. essential to have a long period of casting and then once you get that more like the shooting script or the the final script um is that when you were like okay this is going to be 80 locations this is going to cost us three million pounds i'm going to go to our usual partners is that the stage or are you doing that a little bit yeah. sooner no i probably I, I might have alerted our usual partners to the fact yeah. that there is something coming down the track but um uh and then as, and then when i've got that draft i will send it to them and and then in the meantime i'm looking you know we're, we're finding the place to do it and we're uh looking for key crew but right. we have a we have a bunch of people that we've worked with before so we yeah. have the same production designer the same editor same composer you know a lot we've built up a gang of people over the years that we go back to so there's a lot of conversations you don't have to have but then you 
so then so then you can concentrate on the new story and you can concentrate on the casting and you can concentrate on how best to tell that particular story mm. so that's what we do yeah and you mentioned casting um and i have to bring him up just to let everybody know that i did one of his such an early interview with martin compston uh, when I was at IndieWire in New York, I got to talk to him on the phone for Sweet 16. And yes. he was so young and innocent um, and just so lovely. You know, and Ken has used a lot. I mean, he's used some brilliant actors who were established, you know, so many examples of that. But especially with new talent, how, how do you approach finding new, either young people or sort of undiscovered people? Well, it's a, a lot to do with the casting. It, casting process the casting director Colleen Crawford has been doing our casting for nearly 20 years now I mean she was she, actually she was she came on board just directly after Sweet 16 but usually what we would do before then we would work with a researcher and we'd choose where we wanted to make the film and then we would work with the researcher to find all the relevant people and in the case of Sweet 16 it was a case of finding young people and so we got in touch with theatre groups. We got in touch with often football clubs, wow. um, local teachers, um, and just and just to send a researcher. The researcher would go in and just see who might be able to respond, who has spark, and who might be able to, you know, given a bit of improvisation, who might be able to hack it. Mm. And the thing about Martin. We actually, funnily enough, we actually had to, we actually had to offer him a fiver to come to an audition. He didn't turn up twice, and we offered him a fiver to come. So eventually, he came because we'd heard that we'd heard about this kid. Who, who, you know, was work. He was a good footballer, but he had some spark to him. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, he came in and he just nailed the improvisations. He just nailed it, and he, we had, I think. Paul probably was standing in and acting as uh, a, a horrible headmaster. And Martin was so inventive and so creative. We thought, yeah, he's really got something, this kid. And uh, yeah, so we, we, we cast him. And when, when, we, when he got the role, he asked his dad, we asked his dad to come over and, and uh, told, told him that he'd got this, the role. And, and he said, well, actually, it's, it's, it's not just a little role, it's the main role. And, uh, and this is what we're going to pay you. And they were so gobsmacked that there was not any money in it at all. But of course, you have to pay, he's a leading actor, you have to pay him something quite decent. Yeah. And so the shock was incredible. It was like, the, it took days to get over the shock that he was going to be the leading actor in this film. And on the same week in which he was cast, he was also scouted for Greenock Morton, the football club. And we had to persuade him that, well, actually, his dream was really to play for Celtic that if Celtic wanted him, they would have got him by now so that he should come and do our thing. So luckily he did. And 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 the rest is history, Martin. Oh my God, I just watched the new Line of Duty. Oh my God, it's it's amazing. It must feel great though, to sort of help discover somebody and oh, then watch wonderful. them flourish. There's some, yeah. you know, it's, it's, it's a wonderful experience. And, you know, when you work with young actors and then you see them go on to do amazing things, it's just a great, Martin's, particular special one though it really is yeah. um you know every film has its difficulties um that's one reason i wanted to do this talks with producers because i'm in awe of everything you pull off every time a film is made are 
you know, can you think of, is there one Ken Loach film that was the hardest to make? Was that Hidden Agenda or was it something later? I mean, it could have been Hidden Agenda, but, but in a way, Hidden Agenda, the thing with Hidden Agenda was the money was in place. We got the money in place and then we were, so then it was all, it was sort of hair raising because there were, there was the moment when the Royal Ulster Constabulary turned up on the penultimate night and told us that we, should, you know, we should get out. Yeah, yeah. And uh, that 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 you know that, that that we were propagating lies with the film that we were making. That was a bit scary. Um, but actually, no. The most difficult was probably Land and Freedom, or The Wind That Shakes the Barley. Doing period war films mm. on low budget is not easy. And Land and Freedom was difficult because it was the first co-production we'd done. And we sort of invented the way that the rest of the films were made um, or for ourselves. I mean, it was our first experience. And, it, and because the film was about the Spanish Civil War and set in Spain, obviously it made sense to have a Spanish co-producer and we, the Spanish co-producer begat a German co-producer. We met Uli Felsberg, a German producer who was just wonderful and really helpful. And both the Spanish and the, uh, German co-producers had a lot of experience co-producing. And Sally Hibbin, who'd been producing some of Ken's films, she, she did Riff Raff, Raining Stones and Lady Bird, Lady Bird. Sally came and helped me. She came on as a, an exec as well. So she helped get them, put the patchwork quilt together. So she and she had gone to a film festival in Spain with Ladybird, Ladybird, and with the express purpose of seeing they, they could find a co-producer, and she did. She came back with both Gerardo Herrero from Tornasol and uh, and Uli from Road Movies. And I mean, I continued the, those partnerships for the next fifteen years, so that was very very effective. And we were we were still part of Eurimage then, so we were able to apply for Eurimage money. We also pre-sold the film to France and Italy. But doing all of this and getting the sort of applications in and doing all the legals and all that sort of shenanigans whilst prepping a period war film was actually not easy in the middle of nowhere because where we were on location was deep, deep Spain. Okay. Um, yeah, and especially setting all that stuff up and finding the right partners for the first time. Yeah. You know, that, that must have been, yeah, quite a yeah, challenge. And Spanish isn't my best language, you know. Um, <laughs> I don't have any good languages. <laughs> I'd learned Spanish, but of course we, we based ourselves in, in Barcelona where they speak Catalan. Yeah. It's clever. Um, but they did speak Spanish in, the, in Mirambel in the area where we, where, where we did the bulk of the filming. So that it was, and it was an international film and it was with an international cast and it was, so it was quite a difficult thing to, to get together. And, and I also had my young son with me because I had a baby after Hidden Agenda and uh, Jack was three, I think at the time. So he was traveling with me as well. And it, so it was actually quite, quite a difficult thing to do. It's just. Wow. Um, yeah. But, but actually, it was also the most rewarding thing. And it was such a passionate film to make. It's a great story. It's the, the, um, the militia, the, the people who play the militia, we're still in touch with them all still now. Paul Laverty was one of the militia. We cast him in it. And, and uh, some fantastic people from all over the place who are still friends. And 
Isia Boyen uh, the, oh, yeah. is also in it, who who is now obviously Paul's partner, and they have three. Director in her own right, yes. And actually, I'm developing a TV series with Paul and Ithea, Ithea to direct. And so, you know, lots of relationships were spawned right. in that, that moment. It was very special. There is now a Ken Loach Street in Mirambel, and uh, we had a celebration about a year and a half ago when we went back to, um, to visit Mirambel, which is just so wonderful, so moving. And, wow. uh, yeah, it's great. I mean, would you say, is it hard to pen down the favorite? Do you have a favorite of, of Ken's films? Is that Sophie's Choice? It's really difficult because, you know, obviously you love each film. You like each one for different reasons. Yeah. For different reasons. It's, it's, you know, you can't have a favorite child, for instance, and they are children. You know, you've, you've nurtured them from scratch and they've grown up. But actually Land and Freedom is probably the one for me because it was so difficult, it was so passionate and it's, I think it's a, an amazing film. I love the film. And all the people who were involved with it are very special to me. And, and it was because it was just the first in so many ways. And it set, it set the agenda. You know, I thought, I thought I might get to do one or two films with Ken, not 16 or whatever it is we've done. <laughs> <laughs> Might be even more. Yeah. What about winning the Palm Door with "When That Shakes the Barley"? How did that feel for you, walking up the Palais steps? What do you think? It was just <laughs> phenomenal. I mean, you don't know you've won it. You you know you've won something. You know, or you get called back that something related yeah. to your film you might have won back. something. You get called back. Um, but actually, it could be one of five prizes because it could be the jury prize, it could be the Grand Prix, it could be best director, it could be screenplay, you know. Yeah. So to, to get called back, I mean, I sort of, having been up the red carpet so many times, we've had so many of our films have been in competition. I think we've got the world record of films in competition. But so you sort of get to know the, how the thing operates. And and you can sort of begin to read the runes. And I mm. sort of thought, I had thought it might be us, but, but you know, you can measure all sorts of things. I mean, we thought we might win it on Land and Freedom. Yeah. And we'd actually been called back and we were sat on the plane to come back. And we were told in no uncertain terms to get off the plane. Never mind. Oh my gosh. And apparently there had been a huge row on the jury and a Mexican communist said, you know, over, over my dead body should this, this pariah of a film win. So we didn't get anything for that apart from the ecumenical jury prize, which we had won several times. Yeah. So, so by the time we got to the win at Shakes of Bali winning, it was a really very, very special moment. And I can't tell you what an amazing feeling it is. Um, just because it's the filmmaker's prize. It's sort of, it's, I, I don't know how to describe it. You feel that it's, it, it, for me, it's more important than any BAFTA or Oscar. It is actually the prize I wanted to get. And so, I, I don't know, it's, it's a, sort of slightly vulgar how I feel about it. <laughs> but I think anybody being honest who's ever won it is ecstatic for so many of those reasons that it, you know, it's a jury of your peers on, yeah. you know, the most yeah. respected of the film. And it was, stages. again, it was, it was a, a difficult film to make. It was, a, it was a, a, again, another very passionate film. It was a, 
it was because it was a, another period war film it was very tough to do but we we put together this amazing group of actors again and and we were filming all over the place in Cork and Kerry and mm. just it was an amazing experience very very special so it was it was great to win for the the team again it's a sort of team thing and mm. um and it was just so so deserved for Ken after all those years you know to, to win it was was just like and it, you know um I think Alison Thompson came up to me at the beginning of the ceremony and she said I think it's you oh and she <laughs> don't go go away Alison <laughs> don't jinx us yeah. but but let me tell you um the thing and and then there was this moment on um I, I, when we were when we were lined up we were sat in quite far back in a row and i was um i think it was samuel l jackson was on the jury and he and and but just before the announcement he pointed at us and, and went it's it's you and he pointed at jack who was sat next to me my son and it's you you know and um i had to climb over ken's wife leslie to go and uh, join Ken on the stage afterwards and who should be at my side immediately as I get climb, clambered over the seats but one Harvey Weinstein and he pushed me up to the front of the stage and said you must go up go up go up and um, so backstage afterwards he was he was there I'd never met him before and he was said you've got to be there you've got to be there and he pushed me up beside Ken and and he said and he and he pushed everybody aside and said, make way for Mrs. Loach. <laughs> Can you imagine this? Oh my God. I said, Mrs. Loach is, is there. She's behind me. She's I am not Mrs. Loach. I am the work wife, but I am not. Ah. Uh, it's it just says so many things that, doesn't it? It just says so many things. It's just about I was about to pay tribute to Harvey for paying, you know, getting the producer's role recognized, this wonderful female producer. No. No. Okay. Okay, good. We don't have to pay tribute to Harvey for anything now. So, um, you know, do you think, you know, Ken had said no more fiction feature films, but then he made um, Sorry We Missed You, thankfully. Do you think he is going to keep you know you don't have to tell us specifics but is he retired or is he going to keep going he's not retired i mean i think you know he's working all the time because he's on endless doing endless interviews and zoom calls and introducing yeah. films all over the place every all the time um but and uh, you know we were hoping to do a, a third in yeah sort of trilogy of that with yeah, daniel we blake and third but the pandemic put pay to that and you know I think it's really difficult that Ken Ken will be 85 this year and I think it's it's extremely difficult just to get out of bed in the morning let alone you know galvanize yourself into making a film and Ken Ken is completely present on set he's never not there he's never um you know he talks to the actors all the time he's he has the way he directs is very sort of physical he's physically mm. very much involved with 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 the actors and and the whole thing and he's very much in charge and that takes a lot of phys physical energy and so i think for him to to and, and and having sat doing 
you know, sat on his bum for the last year. I think it would yeah. be, I think it was it was it was going to be difficult anyway to make a film. So I I I, I think maybe I should persuade him to do another um, archive documentary. Yeah, I mean, Spirit of Forty Five was amazing. So maybe there'll be another Loach. Never say never. Never say never. I mean, I, I just don't know. And it's yeah. it's just waiting for the end of the pandemic. And Ken's so old, he's got two vaccines there. <laughs> Oh, that's the dream, though. Yeah. I'm glad to hear Ken Loach is vaccinated. We need him. Yes. Um, to talk about non-Ken, Mr. Bean film, uh, I guess that was through your work, working title relationship. Yeah. Are you a Mr. Bean fan, Rebecca? No. Okay. No, but I needed some work. Because <laughs> Ken was doing, Ken was doing um, Carla's song, which was the last one that he developed with Sally Hibbin. So he was off to Nicaragua uh, doing that and I needed to earn some money. So Working Title asked me if I would be the producer for Hire on Bean. And basically the idea was to make it in the UK, but actually the story got more and more set in LA. So I ended up going, spending the best part of six months in LA and taking my son with me. And, and uh, it was, uh, I thought, working with Mel Smith was brilliant. And it was it, it was quite good to work. It's always been quite good to work with non-Ken people, as it were, because, you know, I remember how you make films in different ways because Ken has such specific ways of working um, that it's, it's you know, you, you forget how other people make films. And it's, so it's always quite nice to have the, the, the refresh and the, and the fun of making something which is, uh, uh just done in in the traditional way and i really enjoyed being it was fun i loved working with mel smith he was brilliant and um yeah the i i had a it was quite the job the job the panel for the job was um richard curtis rowan atkinson mel smith and Tim Bevan, and it, it, this was the panel I had to sort of go up in front of. But you had to convince. And I just thought, good bloody hell, these are my comedy heroes. It's like, this is terrifying. Uh, but I, but uh, you know, I, and I had no idea why I got the job. I think it was just because, you know, I'm, you know, they, I, think, I think they wanted to keep it British. They wanted to retain the Britishness whilst filming in LA, but I'd never filmed in America before so it was a bit of a baptism of fire but and it was I didn't like I didn't like shooting in in LA um, yeah it, it was very industrial mm. people that you carefully cast would disappear after two weeks and I, very strange and 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 they do they did speak a different language to me I mean I I couldn't understand that an agent would get get in touch and say I love your work and and then you'd never hear back from them ever again and so I, I, I found it very confusing. I mean, you know, you would know better than me, Wendy. <laughs> it's a different system, you know, it's, yeah. um, and to be, I mean, I never go visit Hollywood sets. I've visited, you know, independent American sets, which yeah. are quite similar to yeah. how independent yeah. British films are made or Nordic films are made. Yeah. Um, you know, while we're talking about sets, I like to ask everybody in this series, what are your pet peeves of what people do on set? Are there any? Well, getting in the actor's eye line is a peeve. Oh, that's a good one. I hadn't thought about that. Yeah. Because and 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 that's why 
with Ken, we always keep an empty set. I mean, nobody is allowed on set unless they're absolutely essential. You know, if, if Ken, if Ken could get rid of everybody on the set, he would. And I think that's quite right. I mean, I spend my life around the set and troubleshooting, talking to people around the set, not on the set. And uh, Ken, if I do stray onto the set for one reason or another, Ken will use me as an example to the others and say, Rebecca, don't you think you should not be here? Or something? <laughs> oh God, yes, you're right. And then other people leave. But uh, in, in Spain, they, they invent words for things and they invented a word which was for, for being on a Ken Loach set. And that was, the word is amatoharse, which means make yourself like a bush. So that's my pet peeve is people who do not amatoharse. And I love when, that. Yeah, and when you see our films, you may see gravestone or a tree and I might well be behind that. Okay, so you're not a cameo. You're not in, in the cameos on the ne films. Never been a cameo. Yeah. Yeah, I find, you know, anytime I'm on a set, it's either as a journalist or as somebody doing interviews for the production notes yeah. um, or EPK. Um, and I always feel like I'm in the way. And I'm like, yeah. I just, if I was a filmmaker, I do not want me interrupting right. your work. You don't. You absolutely and don't. I, I, I find it quite weird when filmmakers are like, please come visit the set. Like, no. Yeah. Make I mean, I think that's why when I when I invite journalists to the set, I I'm the person who looks after them because I I, I find if 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 I have a, a unit publicist is a, is another person that I don't need to be there and I and I know enough of the press and I know what to do enough and actually don't have if everything's going all right I have less to do so actually it's better for for the producer to be look after the press because they can then say you don't want to be here and then they can talk with authority about the film yeah you know, and who's doing what and where yeah. and yeah yeah I always stick with the producers when I go and I thought we were friends you've never invited me on a loach set but maybe the next one maybe the next one Wendy okay. definitely um and I'll stay away I'll be the bush um the bush. um the other question I like to end on is just what do you think this could take this could be a book what do you think people in the industry or outside the industry misunderstand about what a film producer actually does? Well, I think it's difficult to define, but I like to, I like to define it as, as, um, as a sort of the macro view, the overall, I'm, I'm around from inception to archive. So, and I'm, I am what you call the first second opinion all the way. So, where the director does the detail, the producer does, the, the, the producer is the interface between the public and the film, which is very much a way that the location manager is. And it, uh, on a sort of micro level, the location manager is on the floor as the interaction, the person that, that is the wall between the film and the public. So the producer is just a bigger scale version of that. So um, I'm the person who will be the interlocutor between the film and the distributor, the marketing, the getting it out there. And, and because I've been with it, developing it and around when it's been cast and shot and all that edited and stuff. And I've been Ken's sort of right-hand person in that, that, throughout all those procedures. I think that's, that's, that's the way I would describe it. It's very, very difficult otherwise to describe what a producer does because you do, 
you know, obviously you've got to raise the money, but actually that's only a small part of it, really. And um, there's so many other elements to it that it's difficult to describe. It's just like being, being a fellow traveler with the director and where they're doing the detail, you're doing the sort of the PR job. <laughs> That's a brilliant way to put it. And I think we're going to get some t-shirts made that say inception to archive <laughs> yeah. and get them for the producer. Um, gosh, thank you so much, Rebecca. So many great stories. Maybe this is going to be part one of a 10 part series with you. We'll see. In danger of doing that. <laughs> I, no, I, I could do it. I would love to hear in detail about each one, but uh, thank you so much for your time. Congrats on so many great films. We look forward to more. And yeah, the next one to launch will be My Son. Will we see that later in 2021? Hope so, yes, I think Thanks. so. Hope okay, so this is Christian Carrion, the French filmmaker and set in the Scottish Highlands. Yes, absolutely. Exciting. Absolutely. Thank you, Rebecca. Great fun. Lovely to see you, Wendy. Thanks for listening to this Adventures in Producing podcast. I hope you enjoyed it. This series of talks is also available on video at youtube.com and you can find those links at my website, filmwendy.com. Thanks for listening. Thanks also to bensound.com for the music. Hope you join us again soon.